0: Genesis 15. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my state is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these things to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, "'Know for certain that for four hundred years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions.' You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants, I give this land, from Wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Kadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Rephites, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks be to God. I am really glad I did not do that scripture reading myself. Great job, Abigail. Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, we are so grateful for your word, grateful that you have spoken to us because you want to be known by us, and because you want us to know that we are known by you. And so we pray that you would plumb the depths of our hearts this morning, that your spirit would give us ears to hear and faith to see how beautiful and glorious and powerful the message of hope you have for us is today. Lord, we pray that you would speak to us wherever we are, whether we're here and we don't believe in you yet and we aren't sure what we believe, uh, whether we're surprised to be at church this morning or whether we've been coming for a long time hoping for some kind of spiritual breakthrough and it hasn't come. Lord, whether we're here as bruised reeds that are just barely hanging on, desperate for relief and for comfort and for hope, whether we feel completely stuck or whether we're just hungry, we've been waiting all week, Lord, to be in your presence, to worship you and to hear from you. God, all of us, we need the same thing. We need you. And so we pray, Lord, that you would overcome every obstacle, that you would speak to us intimately and personally, and that you would transform us by your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. Let's try that again. Good morning. morning. All right. Well, it's so good to be with you this morning. We have been working through this new sermon series on the life of Abraham. And we've been talking about two things in this story that are really important um, as you consider the story of Abraham. The first is that we have this idea that the God of the Old Testament is really different from the God of the New Testament. We have this idea that the God of the Old Testament is angry and scary and really, really strict, and that the God of New Testament is full of compassion and grace and love and tenderness and gentleness. And Abraham really demonstrates that that is not true at all, that the God of the Old Testament is the same as the God of the New Testament, that the God of the Old Testament is, in fact, gracious and holy. He's loving, and he's strict, and he brings us to a a type of life that none of us are looking for, and that God, the God of the Old Testament, is a God who is faithful to people who are unfaithful. People like Abraham, as we've been seeing and as we'll continue to see, is a complete wreck. He almost totally destroys his life and his family's life several times, and yet God remains faithful to him. The other thing that Abraham shows us is that his life is a great picture of the Christian life. Because God meets Abraham and it dramatically changes Abraham's life. It changes the complete it completely changes the direction of his life. God meets Abraham and he leaves his home, he leaves his family and he follows God's promises. He begins a lifelong journey of faith, not sight. And then last Sunday we saw how Abraham discovered a new way to live a big life. A big life that looks differently from what any of us expect when we think of a big life. A big life where he's able to exist for other people instead of having other people exist for him. A life where he's able to possess the things that he has instead of having his possessions possess him. And this Sunday, as we look at Genesis 15, we're going to see how Abraham lives a life that is not defined by his circumstances, but by the covenant of God. What is a covenant? A covenant is a legal document, and a legal document can be very, very powerful. There's this episode of Finding Your Roots with Henry Louis Gates, featuring the comedian Maya Rudolph. who you know got her big break on Saturday Night Live. She's been in so many movies. And if you haven't seen this show, you really should. It's amazing. It's on PBS. Uh, Dr. Henry Louis Gates who teaches at Harvard. Every episode what he does is he takes genetic research and historical research to to find the family history of his guests. And in this Case uh, with Maya Rudolph, he presents her with this book, which he does every episode. He calls it the Book of Life, and it's filled with all this documentation. It tells this incredible, unexpected story about people's family histories. And he reveals to Maya Rudolph that her third great-grandfather was born into slavery uh, in Mercer County in Kentucky in the late 1700s. And what's incredible about this story is that the slave owner, her third great-grandfather's slave owner, like over 30 years before the Emancipation Proclamation, wrote in his will that after he died, all 61 of his slaves should be set free, and that almost all of his possessions should be given to them. And he actually has the document, the legal document of his last will and testament in the book and Maya Rudolph looks at it and she just says it's incredible to see that in writing. And that's not where the story ends. What's crazy is after the slave owner dies, the family refuses to honor his will and they continue to enslave these slaves and force them to work without any kind of compensation. And what happens is that these slaves, they actually sue the slave owners, and they win. They're set free, and they get 100 acres of land. This is like all before the Civil War. It's amazing. Legal documents can be incredibly powerful. And the Bible is many things. The Bible is a historical book. There's history, real events that happened that are recorded in the Bible. It's a theological and philosophical and spiritual book. It's a religious book. It's a work of art that's filled with beauty and wisdom and poetry. But did you know that the Bible is also a legal document? That's why we call, the Bi- we, we, we separate the Bible into the Old Testament and the New Testament, and testament is just another word for covenant. And so the Bible has the power to change your life because it is true, because these things really happen, because it is a spiritual book that is profound and filled with beauty and wisdom, but it also has the power to change your life because it is legally binding. It is a legal document that brings you legal promises from God. What does that even mean? Well, we're gonna find that, what that means as we look at Abraham's story and we look at this covenant that God makes with Abraham. You see, this story is about a covenant with Abraham and it's important to us because it's actually not just with Abraham. This is a covenant with you and me. Someone told you that your name appeared in a legal document that you didn't know existed. You'd wanna know what the document was about, wouldn't you? might be good, might be bad, but one way or another, it's going to affect your life. And that's what the Bible is. It's a legal document that is written to you. Your name is woven into it, and we'll see that as we look at Abraham's story, and we're going to look at three things to understand this covenant that God makes with Abraham. First, we're going to look at the context of the covenant. Second, we're going to look at the promise of the covenant, and the last thing we're going to look at is the security of the covenant. So let's start with the first thing, the context of the covenant. What's happening? Why does God enter into this covenant with Abraham? Well, today's passage starts with a divine vision. In this vision, God comes to Abraham and he says, do not be afraid, I am your shield. That's verse 1. So Abraham was afraid. That's the context. What's he afraid of? Well, he's afraid that he doesn't have a shield. He he, he feels defenseless. He feels exposed. He feels vulnerable. He feels like he can't know if he's going to be okay. Abraham lacks security. And the reason why he felt this way is because he did not have children. He says to God, well, sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? He remained childless, and he's been childless for a long time. When we first encounter Abraham in Genesis chapter 11, he's already 75 years old, and he doesn't have any children. So he and his wife Sarah have been trying to get pregnant for decades, and nothing has happened. And God comes to Abraham, and he meets him, and he tells him to leave his family, to leave his home, to a land that he will give him, and he promises him that he's going to be a great nation. Now, the ancient world was a tribal society. The ancient Near East was a tribal society, so God was not telling Abraham that he was going to be president. He was telling Abraham that he would have a great family, a great tribe. He would have many children that would have many children, and they would be numerous and powerful. But by Genesis 15, we don't know how much time has passed, but by the time we get to Genesis 16, Abraham is in his 80s. By Genesis 15, Abraham still has no children. All he has is an adopted servant named Eliezer of Damascus. And so Abraham pushes back against God. God says, don't be afraid. I am your shield. And he says, sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? The one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer, Eliezer of Damascus. He was so upset that he actually repeats the complaint a second time in verse 3. You have given me no children. It's, it's, it's like Abraham is saying, God, you what have you done? You haven't given me anything. How can you say that you're my shield? The one thing that I want, the one thing I need, you have withheld from me, so how can I trust you? And you know what's ironic about this is that the name Eliezer actually means God is my help, and Abraham is saying, God, you are of no help to me. You are of no help to me. Now Abraham still believed in God. He's still calling God sovereign Lord, but deep down he doubts God. He doesn't trust God because he's afraid. He's afraid that he's never going to be a father. He's afraid that he will never have a tribe. He's afraid that his family name will end with him. He's afraid that he will lose everything in his old age when he hands everything over to his servant. He's afraid that God is not going to help him. He's afraid that his faith in God has been misplaced. You know, people say that Christianity is a crutch, that it's a great story that people believe to help them feel better about themselves, to help them cope with their fears, to their, with their anxieties. But here's the thing. Have you ever considered that doubt is a crutch too? we are if we're honest with ourselves all of us are afraid to believe in a God who will give you no children a God who will give you no spouse a God who will give you no job a God who will give you no clear way to deal with your illness a God who will give you no peace in your city A God who allows painful and difficult things to happen to you. A God who lets you down. We think that we come to God objectively with our doubts, but none of us do because we come to God filled with fear. And we're afraid to believe in a God who says no to us. There is fear beneath all of our doubt. So what do we do? How then can we come to God? Do we need to get rid of our fears before we can put our faith in God? And in this story, God shows us, no, you don't get rid of your fear before you go to God. You get get rid of your fear by going to God. He says, "I am your shield." I am the one that's going to protect you. I am going to be the one that makes sure that the things that you are afraid of will not hurt you. I am the one that's going to take care of you. I am your shield. You don't have to be afraid of me because I love you. And that's what God does here with Abraham. It's incredible how gentle and sweet and tender God is with Abraham. God has just told Abraham, I am your shield. And Abraham has basically said, no, you're not. He's like an angry teenager. You've never done anything for me, God. All right? And God, in response, says, he doesn't doesn't turn his back on Abraham. He doesn't say, fine, Abraham, have it your way. God continues pursuing him, and he takes him outside. And he shows him the stars, and he repeats his promise, and he shows him that there's something for him to look forward to. He shows him that there are promises that will fulfill the things that his heart is really longing for. See, God knows everything that we are afraid of, and he even knows the way that we are afraid of trusting him and believing him, and he still wants to be your shield. He still wants to protect you. He still wants to help you. He still wants to make sure that you are okay. We talk a lot about how we want to be a church where you can belong before you believe. And that's because we believe that God is not threatened by anyone's questions, anyone's doubts, anyone's gotcha, you know, uh, ideas. Um, God is not afraid of our unbelief or our skepticism. And so the church of all places should be a place where you can belong before you believe, where you can process your doubts and your questions because God is not threatened by our fears. In fact, he wants to take them away. And he does that through the promise of his covenant. So the second thing we're gonna look at here is the promise of the covenant. What is God promising to Abraham? Well, after God told Abraham that he was his shield, he took him outside. He showed him the stars, and he told him that uh, he was not only a shield, God told him, I am your very great reward. And what does that mean for God to be your reward? Well, a, a reward is something that justifies you. It tells you that your effort was all worth it. God is promising Abraham justification here in this encounter, and justification is the declaration that you are right. The declaration that you are perfect, the declaration that all your hard work was worth it, that you did the right thing, which is why justification is usually something that you earn. And this is something all of us need. We all need justification. We need more than just safety in life, we need to have purpose, we need to know that our life means something, that our life has made a difference, that we've accomplished something. We need to know that there is something that we can do right. We need to look at some area of our life and say, at least I was perfect in this. Alex Honold is the first person to free solo El Capitan in Yosemite, uh, which means that he climbed El-, El Cap without any ropes, without any safety equipment, and without Any assistance. He was the first person to do it. He did it back in 2017, and they made a documentary about that climb called Free Solo. And uh, when you watch that documentary, you realize how crazy this feat was. Even other rock climbers who free climb, not free solo, but free climb, which means that you you climb with assistance from another climber, but without ropes or equipment. Uh, They think Alex is crazy, and they try to talk him out of it. Uh, Even the best rock climbers think that uh, there is something wrong in Alex's head. Because one slip, one misjudged move can lead to certain death. Either you're perfect when you're free solo or you're dead. So why does Alex do it? Well, he talks about his motivation in this documentary. He says, look, I don't want to fall off and die either. But there is a satisfaction to challenging yourself to do something well. That feeling is heightened when you're for sure facing death. You can't make a mistake. If you're seeking perfection, free soloing is as close as you can get, and it does feel good to feel perfect, like for a brief moment. One of the really thrilling things about sports is that we get these concentrated moments of perfection. It is amazing when you see... Alex, free solo, to the top, and then he makes it, and he's, he's, he's alive, he's not dead. And that's true of all sports. I don't know if you caught the Niners game last night. It was a really messy game, but only a, free, a few perfect plays resulted in a breathtaking win. We, we, we savor these moments because we are all craving that kind of moment in our lives. We want to be perfect at something. We want to be complete at something and we look for perfection. We look for justification in our work, in our relationships, in our friendships, in our beauty, in our politics. We look for it in our morality. We look for it in our religion the thing is, no matter how good we are, we never feel perfect enough. Maybe in brief fleeting moments, but never completely. And that's actually what's happening here with Abraham. Last week, we saw how God told Abraham that he would have as many children as the dust of the earth. And God said that to Abraham after a huge failure in his life. Because in the second half of Genesis 12, Abraham basically allowed Pharaoh to take his wife, gave him permission to take his wife into his harem as a concubine. And that could have been disastrous, but God rescued him from a potentially disastrous decision, a cowardly decision. And then in Genesis 14, God tells Abraham, look, You're going to have as many children as the dust of the earth. And notice, did you notice God's doing the same thing here? He takes him to the outside to look at the night sky, and he says, you're going to have as many children as there are stars in the sky. But you know what the difference this time is? In Genesis chapter 13, Abraham just had a huge win. Uh, in, in, In Genesis 14, Abraham just had a huge win. In Genesis 14, his nephew Lot gets kidnapped and held hostage by foreign kings, and Abraham goes to war and wins this war with multiple kings and rescues his son-nephew. So at the beginning of Genesis 15, Abraham should be on top of the world. He should be brimming with confidence, but he isn't. All he could think of is that he still doesn't have children he's still not justified. No matter how successful he is, no matter how many right things he does, he's still not justified. And so God takes Abraham out into the night. He shows him the stars and he says, Abraham, you are not going to achieve this. You are not going to justify yourself. I am going to justify you. I will make this happen. Don't trust yourself. Trust me. This is amazing because everyone knows that they need mercy when they mess up really big. But Christianity declares that we need mercy even in our best moments, even when you do the right thing, not only when you do the wrong thing, but even when you do something right, you need the mercy of God because even the right that we do cannot justify us. We are powerless to justify ourselves. The only way we can be justified is by God's sheer grace. And that's why verse 6 says that Abraham believed the Lord, and he credited to him as righteousness. Now, listen to the way that the Apostle Paul actually interprets this verse. Romans 4, verse 22 through 25, Paul is talking about Genesis 15, verse 6, and he writes, this is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words, it was credited to him, were written not for him alone, but also for us, To whom God will credit righteousness, for us who believe in Him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Paul is saying that we need to be justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. The only way that we will know that we are right, that we are perfect, that we are whole, is through the righteousness of Jesus that it is credited to us by faith alone. Have you ever gotten credit for something that you didn't do? When I was in high school, um, there was another student one year below me who was also named David Lee. And he was a golf phenom. His name appeared in, in, in the newspaper weekly, and a lot of my friends who clearly were not very good friends would mistake me with him, and they would tell me like, hey, great job, Dave, you know? And, and, I, and I, I, I never had played golf, I didn't like golf, and for a while I tried to correct people, oh, that's not me, that's the other David, they what, there's another David Lee? Um, and I got tired of it, and eventually I just started taking credit. I got a lot of unearned high fives that year. Have you ever gotten credit for something that you didn't earn? Well, this is what justification is. God credits you with something that you didn't earn, a righteousness that you didn't earn, the righteousness of Jesus. You get credit for Jesus' perfect life. And it's not because you earned it, but simply because you believe You believe in the audacious grace of God that justifies you by faith. How do you know? How does this happen? How does this work? This brings us to our last point, the security of the covenant. The next morning, God came to Abraham again and he told him about all the land that he was going to give him. The land tied to, to people groups that are really difficult to pronounce. And at this point, Abraham didn't own any land. He didn't even own a plot of land to be buried in. And so fear and doubt crept back into Abraham's heart, and he said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? And Abraham is asking for security. He's asking for a guarantee. How will I know? And God responds by telling Abram to get a heifer, a goat, and a ram, along with a dove and a young pigeon. So bizarre. Well, this is what people did in the ancient Near East when they made a covenant. What we're witnessing here is a covenant-making ceremony. Uh, In the ancient Near East, when two parties made a covenant, they would take all these animals, they would cut them in and they would put the animals across from one another and then each party would walk between those animals. And it was a symbolic way of declaring, if I break covenant with you, may I be torn in half like these animals. And both parties would do this to give each other security, to give each other assurance, to to make a legally binding agreement. People in the ancient world took covenants really seriously. These days, when you sign a contract, you, put, you usually put your money on the line. But in the ancient world, when you signed a covenant, you put your life on the line. How would you know that a business partner wouldn't betray you? How would you know that a king would honor a treaty? How would you know that uh, your servant won't turn against you? Well, because you made a covenant, and in these covenants, people put their lives on the line. And that's what's happening here. Notice that God tells Abraham to get these animals, but he doesn't even have to tell him what to do. He doesn't say, now, next, Abraham, you cut them in half. Abraham cuts these animals in half without being told, because he knows what a covenant looks like. He knows exactly what's happening here. And so Abraham cuts these animals in half, puts them across from each other, and he can guess what's going to happen next. Abraham expects both he and God to walk between those animals. And God is giving him an assurance. God is saying, if you follow me, if you honor my covenant, then I will justify you. I will give you all these things that your heart longs for, children, land, security. But that's not what happens. Because this covenant was unlike any other covenant ever seen. By the time Abraham was done gathering, butchering, and setting up these animals, it's already sunset. It's taken him all day. And a dreadful darkness, the Bible says, a dreadful darkness comes over Abraham, and he falls into a deep sleep, and he's paralyzed by this darkness. He couldn't walk between the animals. He couldn't get up. He couldn't say anything. All he could do is lie and watch. And while he was lying there, God appeared as a smoking fire pot and a blazing torch in verse 17. How do we know this is God? Well, first of all, we know because in verse 18 it says, there uh, on that day the Lord made a covenant with Ab- Abram. So that was God going down be- between the animals. No one else walked between the animals, only the blazing pot of smoke and the blazing torch and so this is God walking down this this uh, between these animals. God walked alone, which means God was saying, "May my body be torn in two if I break covenant with you, Abraham, and may my body be broke torn in two if you break your covenant, Abraham." And this is incredible. Because think about what this means. Contracts exist to give you legal protection. They exist so it will be hard for other people to hurt you. But this covenant was completely one-sided. It existed to protect the person hurting God. It guaranteed the safety of the covenant breaker and guaranteed the horrendous death of the covenant keeper. It promised that God would be faithful to Abraham, even when Abraham was unfaithful to him. And don't you see why Paul says that we are justified by faith in Jesus? Because that is what Jesus did for us when he died on the cross. Jesus fulfilled God's covenant with Abraham. To save us from our sin and to justify us. When Jesus died on the cross, it was not like a soldier falling on a grenade to save his friends. When Jesus died on the cross, it was like a soldier falling on a grenade to save his enemies. We are not neutral parties in this covenant. We're unfaithful, we're imperfect. We're broken. We're flawed. We make a mess of our lives. We repeat the same mistakes over and over again, and yet God looks at us, and He is not disgusted by us, but He's overwhelmed with love, a love that binds Him to us in a way that He is willing to suffer for our mistakes, to pay for our sin, to treat His enemies like His beloved children. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in Romans 5, verse 7 and 8. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners. While we're still afraid to trust God, while we're still pushing God away, while we're still running away from Him, while we are hiding in shame from God, while we are still wondering, has God abandoned me? God is pursuing us because He loved us while we were still sinners. Abraham asked, how can I know? And it's a question that haunts every single one of us. How can I know? How can I know that I will be okay? How can I know that things are going to work out? How can I know that God is real? How can I know that God hasn't abandoned me? And the answer is God's covenant. God put his life on the line in his covenant of grace to give you a security that no one else can give you. You can't give yourself the security. Nothing in this world can give you the security, but God can give it to you because he's the only one who dared to make a covenant like this with you,
0: and he will love you.
1: He will love you even when you are unfaithful, even when you are his enemy, even when it means death on a cross, and he will not let you fail. What would you do for God if you knew that you could not fail? What would you endure for God if you knew that it would 100% lead to a, a great reward well if jesus is your savior you can know you can know that you will not fail even when you fail because of god's covenant you can know that you can endure anything no matter how hard life gets you can even endure 400 years of slavery in egypt because it will lead to a very great reward and where is the proof not your circumstances not your the way that you feel The proof is in God's covenant. And that's what this table represents. This is a covenant meal. Every Sunday when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we are reenacting the covenant ceremony that we see in Genesis 15. But we don't tear animals in half. We tear a loaf of bread in half. Because Jesus said, this is my body, which is broken for you. And so on the night that the Lord Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and after giving thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body for you. Eat of it in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it in remembrance of me. And as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for giving us the one thing that none of us could ask you for. There's so many things we ask for, Lord, things that we think will give us security, but Lord, none of us could have ever dreamed to ask that you would send Jesus, your only begotten son, to die in our place on the cross, for him to be torn in two so that we could be made whole. And yet, Lord, we didn't have to ask because you were glad and willing to give it. And so we thank you for this table. And we pray that as we take hold of the bread and the wine, Lord, that we would receive all of Jesus, that our faith would be buoyed, that we would be filled with an otherworldly joy and an otherworldly peace because we are able to taste and see your goodness and your promises. We thank you, Lord, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.